Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The British artist Vinka Peterson is deeply immersed and attuned to the frequencies of community and togetherness. Her attention is not to rebel against society so much as live outside of it. And from a young age, her life and work have been profoundly entangled in a search for joy, that bone-deep, soul-deep type of joy, as she calls it. And that was born from this radical sense of freedom, which was rooted in her early life spent living on the road with touring sound systems during the 90s rave scene. Now, her multifaceted practice feels more akin to a kind of collective meditation, a space to reflect on how feeling, listening and being with one another offers us an alternative to the present suffering. What the book contains on a very basic level is something which is, is part of being human. The themes of community and family and chosen family are very universal. Beyond all of this are themes that go back forever. Gathering, round fires, being outdoors, collective moments of both joy and sadness. And when I arrived in this place, it, it saved me in, in many ways. It saved me and shaped me. I'm Jen Fletcher and this is The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography. Vinka Peterson's work is inseparable from her life. It is a lifelong project born from a commitment to a set of ethical ideas about how we should and could relate to each other. Over her 30-year career, she's made three books, exhibited throughout Europe, and her work is held in the permanent collections of the Victorian Albert Museum and the Monsoon Collection. She currently lives in a crofting community on the Isle of Skye. I wanted to start by talking about how, in many ways, your work is kind of inseparable from your life. And so I thought we could talk, sort of start by talking about when you moved to London when you were younger and how this was a catalyst for you becoming part of the rave scene. Could you tell us a little bit about that time and what it felt like to be part of this emerging scene? Yeah, I mean, the youngest of six, you know, last one left at home, really bored in the middle of nowhere. And I, I you know, it's the classic scenario of losing an interest in the way education is presented and uh, meeting a boy and he opened up a whole new way of life to me without without me really realizing at the time I basically left school and went to London at the age of 17 and we moved into a squat together and this kind of squat was just us really I think we actually broke the squat we got hold of the squatter's handbook and uh, kind of read the instructions and found an empty house and and moved in but what was sort of going on in the background of that and revealed itself to me was a whole scene in London of squatting and incredibly valuable for people that didn't want and couldn't afford to kind of, you know, either go to university or get a job or whatever it was or live without working, all the rest of us, the normal people. It was a, it was a gateway to the city. And it also meant you could live in London and you 
didn't have to be completely driven by trying to get together enough money to pay your rent each week. So the squatting scene was full of creative people, musicians, artists, everyone, and creative people with a bit of time on their hands. So it was a revelation to me, not only creatively, but socially as well. You know, the different squats had had different feelings all over London, but you could find a squat that basically you fitted in with and you suddenly had a whole community of people around you like a second family or even a first family and that was revelatory so within the squatting scene there were these huge squats that also kind of served as venues music venues so they would host kind of bands like I was kind of at the tail end of the kind of punk scene although a lot of people would argue it's carrying on also the dub reggae nights you know big nights with big sound systems and big loud you know loud music lots of bass and then started hearing about raves. I mean, I don't know how much I can say on a podcast, but I was like taking acid and speed at that point because it was completely normal <laughs> mm. in amongst my particular group of friends. But then, you know, I'd heard about these raves and this new drug called ecstasy. And I thought, oh, my God, that sounds terrifying. Like you can, you know, overheat and die of heat. And I had no idea that I was actually taking chemicals that were much stronger than ecstasy. But anyway, that was what was going on for me and I did the classic thing of sort of ending up at it was probably like a really small club rather than a a squatted venue this time but there were lots of little clubs all over London as well then and it was dance music and I was like wow this is actually quite fun and everyone looks like they're having a, a good laugh and then of course the inevitable someone gave me an E and I just spent the entire night dancing on about one meter square of floor thinking how brilliant is this and then I went into the ladies toilets and that was like blew my mind (laughs) it was like it was like walking into sort of heaven so it was kind of like I suppose in London in particular my introduction to the rave scene was very much through the kind of squatting scene or the alternative music scene so I didn't really go to kind of like a super club or a giant rave to start with and these smaller kind of parties were were really intimate and and much more interesting in a way. Yes, it was a good way to to be introduced to raves. And how did you then, because you ended up living on the road for, I think, was it a decade? More than a decade? Yeah. How did that all come about? My life until 30 or something, yeah. Basically, there was sound systems owned by various different groups of people. So, you know, in one of the squats I was living in, a few of us decided to kind of pull some money and buy some speakers. And we used to do little raves and little squatted warehouses or whatever around our local area, South London. And then there were lots of other people that were doing the same thing. And then some more established kind of rave sound systems like Spiral Tribe, which a lot of people had heard of at least then. And the whole thing was kind of growing and growing and growing. And then you know, we were moving out and doing raves in the countryside, especially in the summers. And then what happened was these kind of um, rave organisers, it was getting a bit tight. The police were starting to try and kind of pinch in on it a bit. And ravers then connected with travellers, like the New Age travellers that have been putting on big parties and gatherings around some of the more traditional kind of pagan festivals and in traditional kind of festival spots still free free events they kind of joined hands like some of the travelers really didn't like it because these 
basically we would go and set up our sound systems at their festivals but of course it was really fun and a lot of people were coming and you know although the trouble was the police were then like okay we've really got to do something about this this isn't you know this isn't going away and it's growing and growing and growing and it's spreading like a wonderful virus (laughs) into all parts of society and I think the moment that the police were like okay we've got to crack down on this was Castle Morton which was a, a traditional festival that then a load of rave sound systems sort of turned up at and then there was something going on I think it was a bank holiday weekend or something so not only were there like 10 sound systems that all said yeah we'll come and set up but also at one point I think it was just before the weekend or maybe on the Saturday morning or something suddenly all the pirate radio stations in London started putting it out get down there it's a massive party (laughs) so like everyone from anywhere that could get there basically turned up and there was something like I don't know 20,000 people or something wow. no facilities <laughs> a bit messy but um it was like brilliant and everyone had a great time and what you got there you see was normal people from all different walks of life blatantly standing up to the police and, and just sort of trying to break through any police barriers on the roads or they just didn't care because what what they wanted to do seemed so harmless you know we just want to gather gather together as human beings and dance the night away so I think that was really terrifying for the authorities because it wasn't like the classic law-breaking people it was everybody Mm. and at that point they brought in the criminal justice bill which basically outlawed anything really around raving including like driving towards a rave gathering more than 10 people together listening to repetitive beats so at that point a lot of people decided to they were like "Mm, well we've got the alternative which is France (laughs) just across the water double the size half the population and they they don't know about us yet (laughs) so a lot of the sound systems then went abroad and I followed them and then there were also sound systems setting up raves in France and Germany all over the place and yeah what ensued was a life for me anyway of putting on raves pretty much almost every weekend for free for anyone that wanted to come along. I mean when you told me about it before it's, you kind of touched on it this like real sort of community endeavour this sort of mm. moving sort of traveling family who kind of all supported each other I'm sure there were highs and lows I don't mean to make yeah. it sound completely utopic although it does mm. sound like that I think mm. especially in the context of the world we live today yeah but where did your art practice emerge through this? Because I know at the time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you were thinking of yourself as an artist. You were more part of mm-hmm. this sort of movement. Well, I'd always taken photos. My dad was a sort of amateur photographer and I'd had cameras around me and film around me all my life. So I, I didn't like the kind of the way in which he photographed particularly, which was, you know, very static portraiture. Um, that was really excruciating if you were the subject. <laughs> so I kind of took the the little Instamatic camera he gave me as my first camera and never really changed from that. And I liked the way I could record what was going on around me without really influencing it or affecting it too much. So I, I had a camera with me throughout these years. When I was squatty in London, I also, for a bit of work, I did a bit of uh, modelling on the side and through 
just for for some of the kind of more alternative magazines because at, at one point for example I had a shaved head so it wasn't going to be Vogue but um <laughs> yeah so I worked with ID and magazines like that and then I met Corinne Day who's a photographer fashion photographer at the time but she was actually styling a music video for her partner Mark and um they asked me to model in it and I spent the day kind of chatting with her about my life and we became friends and I used to visit her at her flat in Soho all the time. So quite often when I came back from being abroad, I would sort of rock up at her flat in Soho and show her all the pictures I'd taken. And she was kind of fascinated by this like way of life I had. And she would give me rolls of film and cameras and I mean, literally give me cameras if mine broke or whatever. And I think she was putting together a book with Michael Mack at the time. She was in the middle of the process and I turned up one day and I said, well, I've taken all these pictures over this these years and everyone wants copies of them. And it's really expensive. Digital photography didn't exist then. So you literally had to go and like develop them at Boots and then, you know, do extra sets of prints for anyone that wanted one. So I sort of said to her, you know, how can I reproduce like a kind of family photo album, as it were, for each of the kind of sound systems I'd lived with or traveled with over the years? You know, I wanted to make like 10 photo albums, basically, and, and give them out. And she said, why don't you publish it? And I was like, oh, no way. <laughs> no <laughs> way I will like get lynched or, you know, it, you know, there was a big thing about it being it was a free scene. So people commercializing it in any way were not welcome. So I was kind of like, yeah, but everyone kind of definitely wants a copy of this family photo album. So what I did is I kind of put it together with Michael Matt and he said, you can have like full control over the edit and everything else. And I went back on the road for a year trying to find as many people as I could and showing them this kind of mock-up copy. Actually, it's in um, Martin Parr Foundation at oh, the moment. Wow. So you can go and see it if you need to. But yeah, it went, went on the road with me and everyone kind of had quite a similar reaction to it, which was like, I was like, what do you think? You know, what do you mind if I do this, like publish this? And they were like, no, 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 no way, you know. And then they kind of look at it and they kind of go, mm, well, I suppose so if I can have a copy free copy mm. so that's what I did and it was the first book that Michael took to Steidl Gerhard Steidl in Germany and we all worked on it together and I had this obsession that it had to be less than a tenner because I knew everyone could get together a tenner and I thought it had to be affordable and Gerhard basically said oh yes well we can make this quite kind of quite small book with you know maybe 80 pages or Whatever. And by the end of all these meetings with him over the next month or so, the book got bigger and bigger and, and more and more pages. And I was like, I really can't edit it down anymore. This is how it's got to be. And I think in the end, he ended up publishing it at a loss, but he didn't he didn't care. He kind of said it reminded him of work he'd done when he used to print. He, he used to live in New York with voice and it reminded him of, of that time in the 60s in New York. So he did it for for love, not money, I think. I mean, it, that it just everything about it is wild to me because, <laughs> like, if you think now how uptight publishing is, yeah. you had so much freedom putting it together, and the mm. fact that you got to call the shots in terms of like the price point and accessibility. Yeah. I mean, I feel like people would really struggle to do that now. I've always been very lucky with publishing books. It's either been a, a question of someone coming to me or great collaboration where everyone's really into the subject and kind of wants to 
put in their time or effort or in Seidel's case, the whole printing press. I think also, although I don't consider myself to be very fussy or particular in life, when it comes to things like making books, I know exactly how I want it to be in the end, you know, and there's no, there can't be any compromise with that because it just feels so uncomfortable and wrong. No System is the book that we're talking about. I can't remember if we've mentioned it, but I mean, it's just an incredible body of work. And even beyond the sort of documentation of like the raves and the free parties, like what is really disarming for me is the community aspect of it. And it really like draws parallels to me for like the queer community and sort of our concept of chosen family, Mm -hmm. because there's such intimacy in some of these pictures. Like while it gets pitched as one thing, like the documentation of this like radical music scene, which is absolutely there, there's also all these incredible moments of like shared experience and sort of drawing focus to the power of unity through sort of simple acts like bathing in a lake together or Mm. cooking together or dancing next to people for hours like just all of these incredible energetic exchanges between people as you say from like different Mm. lived experiences and it's just such a powerful book that like every time I go back to it I feel like I have a different experience or I notice Mm. something that I haven't seen before it's a bit of a masterpiece but there's something really interesting to me in that Obviously, it was successful in the time to have people like Michael, Mac, you know, being involved. But it feels like it's having a real renaissance in the last couple of years. And I wondered what that's been like for you, because it feels like new audiences are finding your work. It's taking on new meaning with the context of things that are happening right now. But also it feels like it's getting some of its flowers, perhaps from the art world that it didn't get at the time. I'm curious what that experience has been like for you, this resurgence and kind of talking about it all all over again. Just think what the book contains on a very basic level is something which is it's part of being human. Like you say, the themes of community and family and chosen family are very universal, but also beyond all of this are themes that go back forever. Gathering, round fires, being outdoors, collective moments of both joy and sadness and I think as a person growing up in the British countryside in a small but increasingly quite smart village, I felt very cut off from people that were the right people for me to live with. And when I arrived in this place, it saved me in in many ways. You know, it saved me and shaped me. The book No System, I mean, it's everyone assumes that No System is a political title, a political reference, and of course it is up to a point. But I wanted the book to be not about the sound systems. The boys and some of the girls, obviously, well, all of us were obsessed by our speakers, but I was kind of sick of seeing, like, photos of DJs and sound systems. So I was like, really, what I wanted to share with people was the life around it. So that, you know, pictures of people making porridge for breakfast on a fire or, like you say, dancing the night away. And it was these much deeper kind of soul deep, bone deep sort of moments of just togetherness that I wanted to share. I didn't I never felt like I was showing people something, but but I felt like I was reflecting what was in all of us anyway. So I think what you said about going back to the book and seeing different things and looking in it at different moments is just typical of the reaction 
I get to it and I think that's because it just it's like holding a series of mirrors up to you it's like how you call it a brochure for a way of living right it's what it's sort of which again thinking about our current context when everything feels so sanitary and individualized like it kind of reminds us that there is a possibility to live another way or remake ourselves is what I find so powerful about it. Just thinking about that, what you just said, you know, obviously growing up in the Thatcher era, like I am, there's a great wound created by, you know, things she said. And I felt like we were trying to kind of heal that wound both in us and in society, which in our case definitely does exist, community. And so it is of its time. And maybe that's why it was such a big powerful force at the time but then at the same time it's always now and you say there's a resurgence of this but I think there's always been this need to be reminded of these basic and important values within us all because you know our sort of consumerist society is all very well in some ways but you know one can go on and on and on consuming and in in some search of some form of sort of endless happiness or something. But that sort of sold the contentment, really, and, you know, moments of joy, but but also contentment really comes from elsewhere. And ultimately, I think we, we try and seek that out. And I think as a young person at the time, I found it there. And the way we lived and the things I experienced then, like you say, there was some really bad stuff and some really amazing stuff but and there was an overall feeling that stuck with me and has informed my whole life and I'm so grateful for that but it's available to us all all the time I think that's the other point this isn't a nostalgic thing it's, it's sort of embedded in our everyday choices yeah it's interesting that you say that I remember one of the things when we first spoke maybe it was last year now or year before I can't even remember now but I was really struck by you talking about how you noticed that you have less fear than a lot of other people just generally and you feel like that was sort of cultivated through that experience can you talk about that a little bit because I think it's so interesting yeah I mean it it took a while for me to realize because you know I, I lived on the road on and off you know for nearly sort of 13 14 years and then when I kind of reintegrated back into society which was my choice when I became pregnant and I thought I didn't want to sort of impose any ideas on my unborn child I wanted to follow them on their journey sort of thing I kind of had to relearn how to talk to people and how to be and that was one thing that really struck me I thought why do I seem so sort of not wild but kind of like almost like seemed slightly unhinged to people (laughs) but I kind of didn't feel like that myself and then I would think about the things I did and the way I did them and it all boiled down to that I thought well what it is is that I just don't have the kind of levels of fear that I see around me and that I now know are kind of generated by a lifetime of watching the news for example, or, Mm. you know, listening to the the subtle messages in adverts about insurance or about pensions or about, well, don't go and do this because that might happen. And when you've lived a life full of the kind of experiences that I had or, or lived the early part of your life, everything's relative. 
So it, it really isn't worrying to think, well, what will happen if I don't have any money one day? Because there were ways of surviving without money. You know, that's obviously a massively exaggerated statement, but as an idea. Also, the fact that you could rely on other people getting sort of membership to like a breakdown recovery company. You know, we never had any of that. But what would happen if you broke down? If I broke down in one of my vehicles at the side of a road in France, I would walk to the nearest farm and ask the farmer to come and help me or something like that. I mean, it was, it, you know, but now it feels like you can't even sort of leave your house without car insurance, breakdown recovery, you know, as if there's no one out there that could ever help you, <laughs> mm. you know, that you'll be somehow like stranded in like some terrifying situation if you don't sort of and that these are just examples of so many of these things in everyday life. I'm curious about your sort of photographic approach making that work like what was guiding you how are you thinking about the pictures because mm. presumably it was all shot on film and so you wouldn't actually be getting any feedback from the pictures so I'm curious what your yeah, your approach was in making the work and how you sort of navigated the fact that, you know, some people didn't want to be photographed or... I mean, I think what you have to remember for both No System and Future Fantasy, which I made much later, but which actually covers an earlier part of my life, which between leaving school and going to the first kind of raves, the first real cheesy raves <laughs> around London. As I said before, I was used to having a camera on me all the time but I wasn't ever documenting something I was just capturing moments of my own life that I wanted to keep so the photography came second to the the doing whatever I was doing and and it was almost like a sort of impulsive reaction so I would always have these little cameras like I said in my pocket and I would just go oh, you know I'm having a great moment right now or isn't that a beautiful thing over there? And it would, you know, there would be no kind of setting it up, no taking three photos of the same thing. So the impulse was just to capture it. And often I didn't even look through the lens. I would just take it out of my pocket and kind of hold it up, especially if I was talking to someone at the time because I didn't want to put something in front of my face, in front of my eyes. If you're holding a conversation, you're usually looking into someone's face. So I would just hold it sort of under my chin or and take the photo that way and, and people often wouldn't even really notice but also you've got to remember I had access to to all these people because even saying I had access to them sounds weird it was just taking photos of my friends but I had a mm. lot of friends and I met a lot of people because I did these huge parties all over Europe but yeah there was never an intention to do anything with the photos until sort of the late 90s uh, so it was it was just a question of capturing light capturing a moment um I wanted to keep I realize I've never asked you this but as the book started to unfold or the, or the potential of making a book did you have to be kind of pushed into that did you have resistance about that or had you reached a point where it was something you really wanted gosh no I mean no system that like I said in the beginning that my resistance to it was my own battle with the idea that I was sort of publishing something that felt private and I suppose that's always a bit of a a battle within someone that, that takes photos of their own life, you know. 
Future Fantasy. No, that that was a creative journey with with Ben Freeman of Ditto Press, and that was very enjoyable. And I handed over a, a lot of the creative side to him because because it was more interesting for me to watch someone else at work within the archive. Yeah, there's also um the third book, of course, which is Juice in a Quarter, which mm. is very different again, and that's that's a kind of all female road trip across Texas, which is you know made in a much shorter amount of time, but Again, it's, you know, like No Sister was a brochure for a way of living. It, it, it feels a bit, to me, Deuce and a Quarter is the uh, street name for the car we were driving. And, it, and and the whole thing just feels a bit of, of a kind of like, not a call to arms, that's a bit intense, but just that women can set out in a car across America and have a great time. And no, they're not going to have to drive off a cliff at the end. <laughs> and they don't, you know, they're not going to fall out or hate each other but they're going to have incredible experiences and meet extraordinary characters and get the wind in their hair. How did that project come about? Well I was actually invited by Corinne Day. She was photographing for Condé Nast at the time and I think I think the plan was that she spent the entire budget on the car and then we like just sort of made do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so um I think she thought she had to invite people that were that were going to be able to deal with that. So she invited I think well her and Susie Babchick came up with the idea who was her kind of agent and friend at the time and then Rosemary Ferguson came along as the model really and I came along as kind of friend come model come she knew I would be good if the car broke down. <laughs> Fearless driver and yeah, at the time she she published a set of pictures about the journey sort of straight away, and um, I didn't publish the book till what twenty years later, whatever. But it was always sat there going, share this story. So I did. Yeah. You mentioned before about getting pregnant and you know being a mother, and I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, well, in particular, ask you about sort of the intersection of being an artist and a mother which I feel like there's a lot more discussion about now, but I, you know, your son's a lot older and you've sort of been, you've lived through it. You've done that sort of juggle and trying to figure out that sort of chaos. And I'm just curious what your experience was like sort of juggling motherhood and your practice and if you have any wisdom or I think maybe the worst thing for a photographer during motherhood is that you just take pictures of your kids the whole time and think they're the best pictures you've ever taken maybe some of them are yeah I'm not gonna do a book on Archie I don't think but I think gosh being a mum is like just such an incredibly amazing creative journey that you just get lost in that what else do you need to do you know but I, I did carry on working I was a single mum for pretty much all of it and yeah that was really hard but you know ultimately I guess these are choices we made I I I chose not to stay with a dad and but I wanted to work and carry on making work and I just think you know life life is is the palette isn't it and life is also the source of of all one's sort of thoughts and energy and inspiration so the fact that maybe you have a a bit of downtime in your practice I don't think takes away from from it long term I mean yeah it's hard but as I say to Archie you know we aren't being bombed yeah Yeah. it's very true 
I, w- I wanted to ask you about a life of subversive joy, which is mm-hmm. this incredible installation that you've presented a couple of times, which shows hundreds and hundreds of your photographs and ephemera from your life during the time that we've been talking about. Can you can you tell us about that exhibition? Because it's one of those things that I am ridiculously gutted I never saw. Well, you know, talking about fear, fear and joy wrapped up into one thing, you know, an artist being presented with a sort of, I think it was about a 25 metre long by four metre high white wall <laughs> saying, <laughs> produce something for I just looked at the wall and I'd always had this kind of idea because I'm slightly chaotic in, in the in my nature. I quite like the idea of timelines. I like quite like structure. And I had so I was deluded to think that I could produce something structured just because I wanted to. So my my original idea was a kind of timeline of, of rave, you know, from from my own personal experience but then when I sort of brought I brought into the gallery of these boxes of my archive which is really lovely to edit actually because it's all six by four prints I never made any contact sheets I always just made prints so you know I'm there with boxes and boxes and these things and I'm starting to lie them out on the floor and they're making me laugh and I'm looking at things and people in the gallery are sort of you know technicians are coming in and oh I was there I went to that one or oh I used to do that when I was that age or you know, what are you doing now? And I just, it was just, I thought, well, for once in my life, I, you know, I don't need to edit. I've got all this space. Mm. And, and rather than picking out kind of key moments and beautiful images that stand on their own, I thought, well, the generosity here is to share as much as I can. So I just started putting, putting the pictures on the wall chronologically And I suppose what I wanted to talk about, because the exhibition really was predominantly about, it was Sweet Harmony, um, and it was predominantly about rave, but I thought what would be interesting, I had a whole room in the end, and I thought what would be interesting is to talk about what happened a little bit before I became a raver, and then what happens to you after you've been immersed in this ongoing experience. So the the timeline kind of begins with with some sort of photographs I took at home when I was very young. In fact, the first photographs in it are are from when I was about seven. And then it goes into, like I said before, the kind of first part of the rave scene and then the illegal rave scene and then living on the road and then right at the end, things that came from it. So the idea of, you know, what can can come out of these experiences. So I I then put up pictures of, for example, a a year that I spent in in Italy with a group of people resurrecting a a big top circus tent, which then carried on to become a a circus, which is still around now called Baseline Circus. And then also an organisation I set up that's actually just come to the end, but it was 12 years of driving through Europe, either to Ukraine or Romania, working on various projects out there, humanitarian aid. So the timeline is basically my life up until about, you know, five years ago in all its convolutions. Beautiful chaos. <laughs> is, that, is that even a word? Beautiful chaos sounds. Yeah. I'll just, beautiful I'll chaos. Just, I'll just pause every time I need a good word. <laughs> jump in with one. Oh. It, it's funny because we initially met, even though I knew a bit about your work, we initially met because phone paired us for mm-hmm. um, an issue. And uh, I think 
what kind of they connected us on is I write a lot about joy as a mode of resistance and your practice thinks a lot about joy as a subversive act. So we've got a lot in common, I think, in terms of like our ethos and how we want to remake the world. But I'd love to hear what joy means to you because it's become this through line in in kind of everything you do. And we'll talk about where your practice is now because things have changed quite a lot. But I'd love just to hear about what it means to you and why it's so important for you to centre it in your practice. Echoing back to that, the first experiences of of sort of battling with the police and, you know, what were we battling against? We were basically battling that they didn't want us to experience the joy we were experiencing. (laughs) Joy seems to be, to me, something which takes you to to the outskirts of things. So if you think about the court jester or the fool, or clowns they are very very powerful characters but always kind of sort of outside or in a sort of surreal part of whatever's going on and I think the power in that was always very fascinating for me when you're faced with a line of riot police for example making them laugh is one of the most disarming things you can do (laughs) violence can't often be meted out when there's also laughter in the same space so I've always been slightly fascinated with the the power of joy and also the fact that within our society and culture now there's so much pressure on everybody that it, it almost becomes something which is supposedly unimportant to be taken seriously in a meeting one must be serious to get through life one has to work hard it's not to get through life one has to giggle Mm. (laughs) and so and and the subversive nature of joy is is I I don't really mean subversive in the sense that it has to be subversive but subversive in the sense that it isn't the kind of sugary sort of commercialized joy that we get kind of spoon-fed it's much more about something deep within us yeah it's really powerful and I think yeah as we kind of I don't know, as the world is literally on fire, it becomes more and more important. Well, I think for some people that's a bizarre thing to say, you see. But mm-hmm. but I think that's the point is, is, you know, there's a regenerative and powerful energy that goes through us when we are laughing and connecting with a more childlike part of ourselves. And we need that kind of thing to survive. I really believe that. Yeah, yeah. me too. Mm. I, I wanted to ask you about Future Youth Project, which you kind of touched upon a minute ago. Could you tell us about how that came about and how it evolved? Yeah, well, for, for any students, art students thinking, oh, she's got such a developed practice and all that. Well, I went to art college when I was 31 and I thought, yes, you know, I've done, I've published a book. I'm, I'm an artist. I'm going to go and like make stuff. <laughs> uh, I was really bad at making things. <laughs> so I, you know, I tried everything. I was like, I'm not going to tell them I'm a photographer. I'm just going to go. And, I, and basically Archie was too, and it was a great way as a mum to get one day a week off your baby (laughs) I'm going back to school so um, I did a a fine art degree over six years one day a week it was perfect brilliant and I tried making with my hands I tried you know I did a lot of reading which was good and then 
one day I came across some writing by Joseph Boyce and uh, although you know he he's not 100% the sort of artist that I I love his writing around something he calls social sculpture really got me so the you know the idea very loosely is that rather than sculpting an object one sculpts a situation or people and I thought uh, it just all clicked into place. I thought this is what w- I've been doing with putting on the raves, uh, with building the circus. And I started to explore it and I realised that I could bring together three different threads. So I could bring together my joy for of, of travelling, like driving big trucks, <laughs> long distances, my joy of photography and taking photos of interesting things and this kind of growing urge in me to want to give back you know in in some kind of humanitarian way and so I I created an organization much as boys created many a few different organizations to tackle different things so I created an organization called Future Youth Project I don't know why the youth is in there because we didn't concentrate on youth at all but it just seemed obviously something I thought at the time and for my kind of final piece I bought a big red minibus and parked it outside the college and put a bus stop in the minibus and basically said um, does anyone want to come to Ukraine because I had been there in 2000 on a kind of an organized humanitarian aid convoy that had taken aid up to people suffering from the fallout from Chernobyl and I knew I wanted to go back because I had had a wonderful time meeting the Ukrainian people I'd met along the way. So consequently, I did take a bus full of various people and out to um, uh, an institute in the middle of nowhere in southeastern Ukraine. And the idea was that the journey was part of this kind of healing process, but also this bonding process. So this six days in this bus of everyone coming together with this common mission to do something good, and it worked just like that, you know, people arrived on the bus on day one. And then by day five, we were so bonded that we were ready to kind of face what we faced at the other end, which was people that had been languishing really in a state orphanage, it was called, but um, it was people from the age of four to about 50 with disabilities. And what I found there was was both a tragedy and full of joy, in fact. And our kind of ethos was you know no that we weren't martyrs or angels we were people that wanted to feel good about ourselves about life and at the same time help other people so it was this like wonderful kind of reciprocal situation where we were making ourselves feel good we were making them feel good they were making us feel everyone was feeling great (laughs) (laughs) so and and also the people I took along on the journeys were people that you know maybe wouldn't traditionally be able to volunteer very easily I there were people with disabilities it was so heartwarming and brilliant and successful in its own kind of like ship of fools kind of disorganized way that we carried on doing it and uh, I think we did sort of nine journeys out there in various forms over the last sort of 13 years. One of your strengths which you might feel like is not a strength is that you truly like follow you go at your own pace and you you uphold your values even when that seems hard or when other people maybe it's better phrase when other people might struggle due to what's off the offer on the table you know you're not you don't seem to you're not going to sort of I'm 
not phrasing this very well. I get. I'm trying. I to keep say, thinking. She's like, basically saying I have. A, I'm. I'm poor. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm no, saying. No, but that's what all. some part of me is going. Yeah, that's why you're poor. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's how you can answer it. These, that's how you feel. Your guns or I, I, you know, I have photographers and people coming up coming up to me an annoying amount of time actually saying, "Oh, it's so good that you know you've just stuck with the you know exactly what you wanted to do and." And I'm just looking at them thinking, yeah, but, you know, you've made a living out of this. I haven't. So that's what I meant by that. But, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think something happened at the very first exhibition I ever did, which was I was too nervous to approach galleries when I published No System. And I thought I'll just put on an exhibition myself and some friends helped me. We found this old disused garage and did an exhibition in there. And um you know, I was very free to choose which pictures I hung. And what I noticed in myself was, I I think I spent exactly like £5,000 or something doing the framing and the printing. And I sold exactly £5,000 of pictures. So I wasn't left with a profit. But what happened was that I would then look at the pictures and go, oh, yeah, well, that one sold. So I'll take more like that. (laughs) And those ones, oh, I'm not going to bother taking any pictures like that. And I suddenly went, oh, oh my gosh how quickly that will influence my work and like how would I ever know whether I was actually you know publishing or taking photos because I thought they were going to sell or because I thought they were things that I needed to give to the world or share with the world so right at that very I mean I was what 26 then I knew that I had to do other things for money so I just I just went out and got jobs and just kept them very separate the, the, my practice and the, and the way of making money it wasn't necessarily a question about money but I think that's really interesting yeah. I was more curious if you've ever felt pressure to deviate from your path and and sort of follow the institution no 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 I, I mean I, I physically can't I've become repelled by work that isn't authentic I mean, the, the amount of kind of uh, gauges within me, I noticed this the other day, to look at work and see whether I believe it's authentic or not, not only my own work, other people's work too, but it's it's almost, for me, it's almost energetic. It's mm. like, I, I can even tell within my photos if it was the first photo I took of something or if I decided, you know, I was a bit cleverer later on, I might take two photos of the same thing, not a whole role like photographers do but you know and always the first one's the one that I choose the second one might be framed slightly better or the light might be slightly better but there's something gone from it which is in the first one and I think I'm just very highly sensitive to that so you know we're going into these like details so then if you blow it back out yeah I'm I'm quite impossible to influence by whether you're an institution or not (laughs) I kind of love this about you it feels very refreshing Uh, and I think it's really powerful you talking about that kind of you know the way that like the quiet violence of like mm. commodification of art can like get Mm. into your get into the soul of artists because we still have to survive yeah. And that is such a difficult balance. And it's really interesting to sort of notice that within yourself when you were talking about well, that. I mean, there's an obvious answer to me, which is that you get a job and then you mm-hmm. make art. So, you know, you've got to 
I mean, it's a, just a decision and we're all different. Some people want to make money out of their art because it's the you get the best of all worlds, I guess. But for me, I didn't think I'd be capable of making the art I wanted to make if I was commercialising it. So don't get me wrong. You know, if someone turned up with a big suitcase of cash and asked me to do something, I probably would do, do it. <laughs> <laughs> You've also got a sort of project coming up at the end of August called How to Protest, which really speaks to this idea that you were saying before about social sculpture. And it's all about creating a conversation around how we protest, but also how we need to navigate these new laws that have come in place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think in 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 my moments of doubt, I kind of look for manuals on like what an artist is supposed to do, <laughs> um, even at the age of fifty. And I think I read somewhere, you know, what is it you want to put out there? You know, what's the message? And I think, gosh, well, what is it? Right, and and you know, right now in my head it was part of that rather than like I'm not going to try and think what my entire message is for my whole life. But and I thought, well, rather than sort of me putting out there what I think I need to put out there I thought well what am I interested in now what do I need what do I need to find out about and all this stuff going on around protest is something kind of slightly terrifying for me and also something I'm not very good because there's so much on the internet I'm not very good at kind of editing down and finding out now what I need to from the internet it almost becomes so impossible to navigate all that information so I thought well what I really wanted to do was talk to a group of people about protest and about not just public protest but also private protest within ourselves and so yeah I've put together a sort of four-hour kind of event happening workshop making thing around that so the question the title is how to protest and then how to protest with a question mark so it's it's about everyone coming together and and in an equitable environment sharing either their experiences or or their queries or whatever it might be around protest and I a couple of years ago for the 40th anniversary of the women starting the Greenham Common Peace Camp I took part in a recreation of their walk their first walk from Cardiff to Greenham Common and so I was spent nine days with mainly women actually all different people coming and going walking and talking and that was incredibly inspirational listening to all their different ways of I mean that what what struck me talking of joy and subversive joy I mean what struck me when you read any of the literature or talk to anyone that was at Greenham Common was the creativity and powerful play that they participated in for their protests, whether it was breaking in and running up and down the runway dressed as bunnies on Easter morning or painting great big love hearts and flowers on on the war plane. So it's brilliant, non-violent direct action, you know, painting a, a, a flower on a war plane you know, it can't take off, mm. <laughs> you know, it can't fly anywhere. But, you know, and just things like one day they, they all wash their pants because you have to, you know, wash your pants every now and then when you're living on a camp. And they, <laughs> they just decided to dry them by hanging them all along the fence where all the soldiers have to stand all day. <laughs> and uh, I just really enjoyed all their forms of, of 
protests that were very spontaneous and DIY. So we've got someone from Greenham coming to talk. There's also obviously a lot of international protests, you know, in the news at the moment. So we have an Iranian woman coming to talk about her experiences and also everyone that comes along I encourage to talk about their own experiences so it's a conversation based around a kind of stylized campfire within the Glasgow Women's Library. That's so cool. Um, And then some making as well so we all can take home a kind of totem of of protest and have it in our domestic environment. (laughs) Are you ready for some quick fire questions? Hmm. How do you deal with self-doubt? Oh, ask other people for help. How has success changed your work? It hasn't. What does art enable you to do? Oh, gosh, that was a very visual reaction. Um, almost, yeah, release energy that's, that's in me that needs out. And is there anything that you're unlearning? Fear. Still. And then to finish up, I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show. And it's what matters more to you, the process of making the work or the final project or final sort of presentation of it? Oh, it's just all so interconnected. I I almost don't like even when it's made, it's still carrying on. I don't it doesn't ever stop. So it's always the process. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Vinka. It was so great to talk to you. Oh, thank you. It's always good to talk to you and um so nice to have a mirror, you know, for to to one's work, such a valuable thing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the messy truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake, and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.